Welcome to the TCO Method, the only show focused on helping you massively increase your net operating income. I'm Andy McQuaid, and I want to thank you for tuning in to this Tuesday edition of the program. Today, I want to talk to something near and dear to my heart, sort of related to the race to the bottom. It is involved. But I want to talk a little bit today about resiliency. And no, not the resiliency that's been co-opted by certain political movements, actual resiliency in the building materials that you're using in your apartments, in your properties, commercial spaces, stuff that your tenants directly interact with, and why you would choose a less resilient product over a more resilient one. Now, TCO method looks specifically at the lifespan of the property and how you own it and operate it over time, right? If your plan is to only own a property for two years and then to sell it, the priorities on what's being chosen and used in the property change because the disposition plan for that property has changed, right? If your plan is to own the property for 20 or 30 years, then you should be doing everything in your power to maximize your net operating income during that period of time. That means you should be focusing on longer useful life, both before replacement and longer life before maintenance becomes necessary, before replacement becomes necessary, right? It would be nice to have fixtures that maybe lasted past a make ready or maybe even longer to a full-on rehab. Maybe it can survive for two. How many apartments have we seen that are 50, 60 years old with toilets from the 1970s in them? I mean, some of those things are taking seven, seven and a half gallons of flush, and they're still in these units, and they still work. I mean, yeah, they have flappers, yeah, they leak, and yeah, they use a ton of water, but they're there, they're functional, right? They're not pretty. They could be pink, blue, I've seen green, I've seen almond. Like, there's a lot of options there, but it's something that typically, especially in a lower end, maybe uh, rent-controlled or, um, what do they call it, uh, rent-stabilized apartments, it's one of those things that sometimes gets overlooked because as long as it's working and it's fixable, if it's not, it's easier just to leave it there and let it continuously cost extra money every single year, right? But really, when we're getting into a project where we're going to do a full rehab, where it's going to get gutted, maybe not down to the drywall, maybe not to the studs, maybe we're leaving the doors and the molding, but we're taking the flooring, we're taking all of the bath fixtures, kitchen fixtures, cabinets, countertops, carpeting, pad, right? All the, the nuts and bolts to modernize the apartment and give it that curb appeal that we want so we can get market rate for a B. Or, you know, if we're going to go one step down, we're going to look at, 
at getting it to a CEC plus level, the choices are going to be different because you have to be able to afford in your budget the amount of money that you're renovating this unit for with the hope that there will be a recapture over whatever that useful life is. And maybe there'll be a couple years at the end where you actually make some money off of these upgrades that you're putting in, right? You don't want to spend $10,000 a door or $15,000 a door just to break even and then have to spend another $15,000 a door with no upside. Yes, you're maintaining it. You're making sure the quality of the property isn't going down. You're going to make money through depreciation and all the other stuff that goes into real estate. But wouldn't it be nice to do a rehab, do a renovation, do an improvement, spend some money on a capital expenditure, and actually make money on that over time, as opposed to just looking at it as an expense that you have to pay and checking the box that it's done? Like, shouldn't that be the goal? You want to put something in, you want it to pay for itself over time. You want to maybe take a couple of years where you're actually just tapping profit off of it at the end of the, at the end of the useful life. That'd be pretty cool, right? Well, how do you do that? Well, one of the ways is to not step over dollars to pick up pennies. Okay. Well, what is that? That's when we've got stuff like putting in a toilet. You have, I love, for some reason, this show is full of toilets, and I'm not sure if it's something wrong with my brain or what. But anyway, you've got Toilet A that has a flapper. It's a 1.28 gallon flush. You have Toilet B that has no flapper. It's also a 1.28 gallon flush. Or a 0.8. It doesn't matter. Whatever. 0. 0.8, 1.28, 1.6. They're available in all, all the sizes. When you compare them, Toilet A that has a flapper, like 100 bucks. Toilet B, be 150 bucks. Well, why would you choose toilet B over toilet A? The flapper. One flapper replacement. Just one. One phone call. One run to Lowe's or Home Depot to buy a flapper and install it costs you more than the price difference between the two toilets. If you're trying to convince yourself to buy a toilet to save water to pay for itself, it's not just in the water, because unless you're using it in a seven and a half or an eight gallon flush or even, you know, the three and a half or, or four gallon flush toilets from the 90s, the price that you're going to get isn't it's not going to math out the way people think it is like you can't justify that extra expenditure until you look at the resiliency of the product. And you go, oh, my maintenance costs are going to be lower. Because even though there's a $50 difference in price at the front, how many toilets do you have in a, in, a, in a house? Two, maybe three. In a normal apartment, one, maybe two, right? So you're not looking at the difference in water usage from toilet A, 1.28, to toilet B, 1.28. What you're looking at is what's this going to cost me over time? Yes, utility use is part of that, right? The water that you're using does cost you money. Costs you your water bill and sometimes your taxes if your sewer charges are included in your tax bill. Not every municipality or state works that way. Yes, you want to save water and be 
you know, relatively conservative on the amount you use. You don't want to use a seven or eight gallon toilet anymore. That's not a thing that's done. It's a bad idea for a lot of reasons. <laughs> However, they're still out there. So the best time to put a low flow toilet in is obviously during a rehab when there's a really high flow toilet in there that uses a lot of water. But when you're making the decision, the toilet that's in there could be a 1.28, but it's a piece of junk. Maybe it's permanently staining and looks like garbage. Maybe it's cracked. Maybe it's constantly leaking and you have to put a new flapper in every couple of years. The average lifespan on a flapper is three years. We know that. That doesn't mean that every flapper in existence is going to fail at three years means on average they start having issues at three years at a failure rate of 5 to 10%. So if you have a lot of properties, you have a pretty good chance that you're going to have multiple leaking toilets just running water 24-7, okay? The other thing is they could have a bad fill valve. Fill valves are replaceable, but they're 10, 11 bucks. Flappers are 5 to 10 bucks, depending on the model of toilet. Typically, there are more expensive ones I've seen, but they do have issues, right? And every toilet has a fill valve. They're all going to have an issue eventually. You're going to have to replace it. That's part of life. But the reality is that if you have a choice between the two, it's not about the water savings because the water is cheap if you're in a place that has plentiful water. That being said, even in places like Arizona, California, Nevada, Texas, where they don't have plentiful water and water's a little more expensive, the reality is that a single maintenance call is going to eat that $50 difference in between the two toilets and erase it and go upside down, right? We talked about process costing in prior episodes. We haven't gotten super in the weeds on process costing, but it does touch on stuff from what is your time worth? right? As a business owner, well, what is your employee's time worth? Because not only is it costing you whatever it costs you in labor and overhead and all the other stuff to go fix that problem, but it's also costing you in what they could be doing to help you make more money. So you're getting double dipped on every time there's a maintenance call for something that could have been avoided, right? There's an opportunity cost to making a decision to save $50 here that's going to cost you $100, $200. How long does the toilet last? 10 years? 15 years? So you take that three to five year time frame, a single toilet could cost you whatever the toilet costs, and then you're going to tack repair and maintenance two to five times in the life of that fixture before you replace it. So why wouldn't you seek to minimize the number of failures? on that product. I don't know about you, but time is money and it's pretty valuable. Even if it's an employee's time, it's still money. And they could be doing other things. So when we're talking about resilience, we're not talking about the political posturing resilience. We're talking about products that actually take a licking and keep on ticking, right? They take abuse. They survive. He who fights and runs away lives to fight another day? No, that's not right. Anyway, they take a lot of 
damage, a lot of stress, a lot of use over time. The longer a product is in an apartment, the more use it's going to get. And we all know, if we've been in this industry for any period of time, that there are tenants who are harder on properties than others. You need to plan and build your property, your product selection, your rehabs, your useful life, your whatever, around the lowest common denominator of tenant. Well, what's the lowest common denominator of tenant? The lowest common denominator is the one that doesn't follow any of the directions that you give them in their packet when they move in as far as care and maintenance of their apartment. And that is exceptionally hard on the fixtures in your apartment, whatever they may be, for whatever reason. They could have dogs. They could have cats. They could have children. They could have really bad habits where they just beat the garbage out of your apartment because they've never learned to not do that. Okay? There's a lot of reasons that go into it, and this is not a political show. We're not going to talk about any of the political stuff that gets talked about when we're talking about creating a suitable, livable environment for tenants. The same thing is true with commercial tenants. We know that certain industries are harder on buildings than others, and that we know from experience that there are things that you can put in place to to absorb some of that damage and extend the useful life by choosing different products, making sure that there's preventive maintenance being done. There's a lot of pieces that go into the puzzle. Total cost of ownership, TCO, is not something that is simple to calculate because there are so many inputs and it's so different based on the, the type of tenant that's in each individual space. But what you can do is build for failure. Build for the lowest common denominator. Make sure that you've done everything you can on cost avoidance, right? It's part of risk management, but make sure that you've done everything on cost avoidance to minimize your exposure, not necessarily from lawsuits in this instance. Cost avoidance can be something like, let's avoid maintenance costs. Let's avoid premature replacement. Let's avoid instant failure from spilling a cup of water on the ground. People using laminate flooring in rental spaces for, doesn't matter if it's office, doesn't matter if it's residential, doesn't matter if it's light commercial. You spill a cup of water, if it's not wiped up within like seven minutes, that floor is shot. It's going to look like heck. Heck? That sounds awful. It's going to look like hell. So you have all of these things that you put in place to make this place beautiful. And then you're going to spend 50 bucks less here, 100 bucks less there. And I'm not saying blow your budget, okay? I'm not saying that you need to go from a $2 a square foot laminate to a $14 a square foot, you know, solid sawn hardwood or a $20 a square foot engineered hardwood with a, a you know, six millimeter wear surface that can be resanded three or four times. Like, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about look at the class of property, look at your lowest common denominator of tenant, and then look at your maintenance records. What dies the most? What things 
do your clients beat on the most that cost you money regularly that you can build around to reduce the frequency of maintenance and replacement? Flooring, carpeting, bathroom fixtures, cabinetry? Maybe, maybe not. It's mostly a curb appeal thing, right? A cabinet's a cabinet. People like slow clothes. They'll pay more for features. But as long as the cabinet isn't like falling apart after six months, cabinet's kind of a cabinet. I know cabinet makers will argue with me, but the reality is that there's very little difference from one to another outside of the looks and the quality of the hardware that's used in them and the quality of the assembly itself. They're not usually one of the most abused items. Yes, they get dented, blah, blah, blah. They get dirty. They get grease all over them if they're over the stove. We understand that. There's things you can do to make it easier to restore those without having to replace them after a tenant goes in using, you know, avoiding thermofoil and using an epoxy paint, that type of stuff, or buying a product that has an epoxy paint so it's easier to clean after a tenant A moves out, tenant B is ready to move in. You don't have to replace them all. Same thing with carpet. You can put an 18-ounce polyester carpet in with a crummy pad, and it'll last for a couple of years, and you'll rip it out and replace it. But you can probably put like a 20 to 25-ounce blend with a nicer pad in and maybe shampoo it, bring it back to life, pick the right color. Don't put in a white carpet. That would be one of those things. A little bit of common sense. But... There's stuff you can do based on what your most common replacement items are to avoid having to replace them every single time you turn a unit. So why wouldn't you build that in? Labor is expensive. Capital expenditures are not part of your NOI calculation, so they impact the amount of money the property makes every single year. Why would you not seek to eliminate failure because of the race to the bottom because we like to step over dollars to pick up pennies you're talking about an asset that's worth tens hundreds thousands tens of thousands hundreds of thousands millions of dollars and yes dollars matter budgets matter but ROI matters too. So if putting in a $50, an extra $50 for a better toilet or an extra few hundred dollars for a better floor, that's going to reduce the frequency of replacement and increase the useful life is going to break your budget. You need to re-examine how you calculate your budget. You need to be gathering data specific data on what maintenance is happening, what the failures are, where they are, and seeing if there's a way to avoid it. There was a hot minute in multifamily where every apartment, C, B, A, didn't matter the class, was putting water in the doors of their refrigerators and ice makers because it was a feature that people would pay more for. Until they figured out that the tenant pulls the refrigerator out to clean behind it or to get a toy and they yoink the hose out 
in the back of the fridge and it just leaks water everywhere. And half the time they don't even notice for until the guy downstairs calls screaming that there's water coming down into his kitchen and the drywall's collapsing. A lot of property managers suddenly went, oh my God, why did we put water in these refrigerators? That's a great question. Why did you? But now it's a known point of failure. People don't do that as often anymore. Are there still apartments where they do that? Yes. There are now monitoring systems that will alert you to a tenant who has a water leak, right? Kairos is one of those systems. You put the sensors throughout the building, and if there's a water leak near a fridge, a hot water tank, a toilet, a sink, a, an overflow on a tub, whatever, it beeps and it alerts whoever the manager is, whoever's signed up to, to receive those, those notifications that there is an active water leak. Is that the best way to do it? To pay more money to have a monitoring system to watch that? In certain situations, it might be, right? Because accidents do happen and it's still a worthwhile thing. Is your insurance underwriter going to give you a better rate if you do that? Mm, depends on the underwriter, right? But you, we need to stop as an industry. We need to stop building for failure. We need to stop just accepting that we're going to have to do X, Y, Z and replace this part and that part and the other part every so often just because it happens. No, there's things out there that you can use now that prevent that. There's thing, There's flooring with 20 mil wear surfaces that you can stick into an apartment where the tenants have dogs and it will last for many years of useful life with those dogs. And the labor you save on installing and replacing a floor every three to five years or every seven to 10 years or whatever your, your thing is, using a slightly better product with a longer expected life can save you money. I don't know a lot of property management firms that go into a value add and walk every single unit in the entire place and replace every single floor across the board, even the ones that don't need replacing. I don't know a lot of operators who walk into these complexes and look at all of the doors, all the interior doors, and if they're still a common product, that is still being used in the market, like a up here in the Northeast, a six panel colonial style wood grained hollow core, you know, masonite fiberboard door. I don't know that they would go in and replace all the doors just because they wanted to. If they're not damaged, why would you replace them all when you can just paint them? And yet, we see people who will look at products that have the potential to last longer where the technology exists and it is affordable and it will pay for itself when you quantify the labor part and the, redu the reduction in maintenance calls, not even looking at the opportunity cost potential of those maintenance calls, just the maintenance call itself. One maintenance call will eat up that entire $50 you saved on that toilet. And I'm pretty sure your labor's not getting cheaper over time. I'm pretty sure it's harder to get labor now than it was. And I'm also pretty sure that five years from now, it's also going to be more expensive and also going to be harder. 
because blue-collar jobs are not something that kids are going into. So what's your plan? Like, do you have one? You need to get one. You need to be strategic with this. This isn't something where you can just wave a magic wand and throw money at it and it's going to go away. When you start just throwing money at problems to make them go away is when some of the dumbest stuff happens that costs you the most in the long run. Like, you stop making money and you default on your loans. The quality of the property goes down. Oh, we need to raise NOI. Let's just defer maintenance. Oh, okay, good. Sure. It's going to cost you three times what you saved over five years once you start deferring maintenance. But yeah, let's do that. That's a great idea. No, deferring maintenance isn't a recipe for failure. You heard it here first. Deferred maintenance is a terrible idea. Because it always, 100% of the time, costs more to fix those problems that you're ignoring. Because guess what? Deferred maintenance is ignoring. It always costs you more to replace those later, not just because of inflation, not just because of labor, but because typically when something is failing in a building, it will do damage to other parts of the building. And it will cost you more over time. You have a leak in a window. You can either replace the leak or replace the window and fix the leak. Or you can let it keep leaking, which then damages the wood that the wall is made of, damages the drywall. Maybe a severe storm comes and it leaks downstairs. Now you've got failed insulation, rotting wood, moldy drywall. You're exposing yourself to lawsuits for mold. And then you've basically added three or four extra things that need to be fixed because you decided that a leaky window wasn't worth fixing. And now it's going to cost you multiple thousands of dollars instead of a few, a few hundred bucks to get a new window. Like This is the reality of the decisions people are making. And if I sound like I'm annoyed about it, it's because it's completely avoidable and stupid. Like I said, I say things that people don't want to hear a lot. And the reality is they cost money. And I think they're stupid because they're avoidable and they cost money. If they were avoidable and they didn't benefit the property in any way, and there was no secondary damage caused, then I wouldn't care. But the reality is that there's a lot, a lot of operators out there that just don't put two and two together because they think their hands are tied by their budget. The properties are given a budget by the home office. That home office's budget is flawed by its very nature because it's based on a fixed dollar amount that doesn't take anything involving ROI into account. The only time ROI is ever looked at is when they're doing a rehab on a property and they're doing a value add or they're doing a lease up to market rate project to add NOI to make the property worth more, to bring it up to market standards so they can get market rent, whatever. But why aren't they looking at it every day? Like if you know, based on your records, assuming you have any, if you know, based on your records, that you are going to have 
on average, X number of failures of this and X number of failures of that, and that they cost you this and that, why would you not look for a way to minimize not just the quantity, but the expense over time to return value to the property to raise your NOI? Because every single one of these little issues that happens costs you money. And the more issues there are, the lower your NOI is. And yet, we step over dollars to pick up pennies at the beginning of the process because we're worried about $50 to $100 on a budget, because we're worried about maintaining a certain number month to month so that we get our bonuses when we're managing a property. How about we look at what the real solutions are to fixing these issues instead of just putting a Band-Aid on it and waiting for it to fail again in six months or a year or three years or whatever it happens to be for that specific product. I would love to know people's thoughts on this because, as you can tell, I'm pretty passionate. Um, I'm a firm believer that there are no stupid questions, only stupid people. Okay? And um, I mean that in the nicest way possible. No, I don't. I don't really care. There are legitimately stupid people. And they consistently make stupid choices, not just in their own personal lives, but in business. And um, usually they're uncoachable, and usually they're not willing to take any type of constructive criticism. Um, but, uh, yeah, sometimes they need to. Just because it's been done in the industry for so long doesn't make it right. Just because something is expedient doesn't make it correct for that particular issue. I'm going to close out the show just reminding people that resilience isn't a bad word just because it was co-opted by a political movement. Okay? Resilience is important. Not just personally, you've got to take your lumps and get up and keep on moving. But there's a lot of ways that you can build resilience into your operation. If you don't know what you're spending money on, you're doing it wrong. If you don't understand every single failure, how often they're happening, and where they're coming from. You need to. Certain tools that are out there for property management make that very simple. Because when you're entering a maintenance work order into the system, it's tracking and logging. You should, as long as the same categories of failure are being recorded, you should be able to go back and see how many leaks you've had, how many broken faucets you've had, how many doors falling off the hinges you've had, how many door locks aren't working. All the different things that cost you money could be logged and recorded somewhere along with when they were fixed. Over time, even if you don't have prior records, over time you will build records that will show you where your failures are coming from. Me, I see failures because I work with a lot of different clients and I get to see their maintenance. I get to see their 
CapEx. I get to see their, you know, planned value add projects. I get to see all the things that they're doing. And I help to advise them as to things to maximize their net operating income and their return on investment so that they're minimizing the dumb stuff that starts after year two or three where stuff starts breaking and nothing's really in warranty anymore because good luck finding a receipt or getting that same contractor back. Okay. There are things you can do to avoid the same thing happening over and over again. You can control this internally by cataloging where the issues are coming from. And there are systems that do it for you automatically now. You need to learn to use those systems. If you're still using an Excel spreadsheet and you have more than 10 doors, I cannot help you. But if you have a system that automates a lot of things for you, like I recommend, because how much is your time worth? You have a system that does automation. It should be capable of logging serial numbers, install dates, repair dates, maintenance dates, what the expenses are. It may not do process costing, but process costing is not a hard thing to do. Any M&A consultant, any uh, business consultant that's done like Six Sigma or Lean or any of that stuff, they can tell you what process costing is and why it matters. Why don't we process cost in real estate? I don't know. Why did we fight so hard against adopting technology for the last 40 years? It's just an industry thing. We just need to get past it. Thank you for listening. This episode is over. I'm off my horse. Send me an email. Let me know what you thought. Podcast at tcomethod.com. Check out my website, tcomethod.com. AndyMcQuaid.com if you want to find out about me. And please go to whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iHeart or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever. Leave a review for the show. Let me know what you think. I'll try to find it and respond if I can. If you liked the episode, leave a note on the episode. If you're offended by the episode, leave a one-star review and say, this guy's an idiot. What is he doing? He's telling me I'm stupid. I'm okay with that. I just want people to interact and hopefully gain some value, even if they don't like what they're hearing. Be safe out there.